Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hi, this is Stu Hodum with Believe in the Media Guide on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? On Monday, the following statement from the Washington Redskins football team was released. On July 3rd, we announced the commencement of a thorough review of the team's name. That review has begun in earnest. As part of this process, we want to keep our sponsors, fans, and community apprised of our thinking as we go forward. Today, we are announcing we will be retiring the Redskins name and logo upon completion of this review. Dan Snyder and Coach Rivera are working closely to develop a new name and design approach that will enhance the standing of our proud, tradition-rich franchise and inspire our sponsors, fans, and community for the next 100 years. End statement. Founded in 1932 as the Boston Braves, the franchise changed its name to the Redskins in 1933, which it kept when it relocated to Washington in 1937. Through the years, there have been calls for the name to be changed, and in 2013, NBC's Bob Costas gave one of the most reasoned explanations for why the Washington football team should move away from its name. Last November, Costas gave and explained the commentary at Seton Hall University as part of the College of Communication and the Arts Sports Media Speaker Series. The Changing Face of Sports Media, co-sponsored by the Stillman School of Business, featured Costas and Seton Hall alum and ESPN legend Bob Lee, who you'll hear as well. The Redskins team name, which again came up a few days after, it had been an issue that had been somewhere on the radar screen, but it bubbled to the surface again because of some of some protests. Every and a Democratic senator signed a letter, which kind of puts it yes. in the news. And, Ob- and Obama said right. that, that they should seriously consider changing the name. And Goodell said he would look into it, but obviously they haven't done anything. And Dan Snyder said, we'll never change the name, put it in caps. And as it happened, Washington was playing Dallas that Sunday night on NBC. So if that isn't an intersection of sports and an issue that does have a political aspect to it, I don't know what is. And so I did that commentary, which was much more measured than people who fly off the handle. They thought it was, well, I'm bowing to political correctness. And I went out of my way to stipulate that I thought in most cases, political correctness was dubious at best and ridiculous at worst. But in, the, in this one case, get a dictionary. I consulted five. Every dictionary defines Redskins as pejorative, offensive, a slur, a slur, every one. Take other nicknames associated with Native Americans, chiefs, braves, warriors, or even tribal names, which usually are appropriated after consultation with the Seminoles, the Chippewas, local tribes, whatever. They are not by definition insults. Some may object to symbols or, or rituals, but by definition, they are not insults. By definition, Redskins is an insult. I also went out of my way to say, look, I'm sure that 99% of people who root for the Redskins or use the name intend no offense. They took offense because they, they inferred that I was saying that they were bad people or bigots. I wasn't saying that. I was saying take a step back. In 2013, would you name a team the Redskins? And if you did, tell me what the equivalent would be if applied to African-Americans 
Asians, Hispanics. Just tell me. I wasn't saying that this is the most important issue facing Native Americans. They themselves would tell you. It's well down the list. But tell me, what, what sense does it make to use this name? In 2013, Lee hosted ESPN's Outside the Lines, and he followed up the Costas commentary with a story about his own thoughts on the Washington football team. He also noted how difficult it is for a sportscaster to remove a team's mascot from his vocabulary. Talking about that, that nickname, um, we did an hour special on it. I did a commentary. I, I kind of slapped both sides in it. I was on with you, I think. And v- you weren't. Yeah. And you did a hell of a job. Thank you. Yeah. Um, that was a great time. <laughs> Even though, I, what I really remember is a time when Marty Glickman passed away, and you and Marv came on the show, yeah. and I, that was that was a mitzvah. Thank you. Marty it was, was great. It was, it was the best. Um, where was I going on that? Oh, um, and I, I we spent a lot of time on this, and I resolved to, to not use the word redskin as best I could. I had this conversation with Mike Tarico, and he, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he has his own feelings on the matter. And when you script a show, you can do it, but it's so ingrained mm-hmm. in your habit. You try to, you know, make it a, and I, I did not feel like getting up on the soapbox saying, I'm not using this word anymore. Like, mm-hmm. no, my decision, it's an uncomfortable word. Let's just not use it. But I'm telling you, in the course of a ad lib program or a discussion, it is very difficult to break that habit. It is. I think I've substantially broken it, but I'm sure I've slipped from time to time. And if you're addressing the issue, you have to use, right. you have to use the word. At the beginning of that clip, Lee recalled Costas appearing on Outside the Lines in 2001, along with fellow Syracuse University alum Marv Albert, to discuss the passing of Marty Glickman, a 1939 alumnus of the Central New York University. Costas, who graduated Syracuse in 1974, received the first Marty Glickman Award for Leadership in Sports Media in 2013, the same year that he gave his Washington football team commentary. With Lee's mention of Glickman, I wanted to include a question that I asked Costas at the Seton Hall Symposium. Before we got to his mentor, I asked Costas about his hero, Mickey Mantle, and his pocket tribute to the Mick. I wanted to follow up on the Marty Glickman reference, uh, but first of all, could you show us your Mickey Mantle card? You know, there's, there's a wow. story here. First, there, there you go. <laughs> Every right-thinking yeah. American. Right, right. right. Um, it goes like this. Like many kids, millions of kids, growing up in the late 50s and through the 60s, you collected Topps baseball cards. Kids do that today, but they do it as an investment. Duh. We, di- we did it for emotional and sentimental reasons. You got five of them in a pack for a nickel, with that chalky rectangular piece of gum, which if you dropped it on the pavement would shatter like a piece of glass. And you know, you, you didn't waste a Mickey Mantle or a Willie Mays for this, but you put Hector Lopez or Jerry Lumpy on the spokes of your bike, so when you pedaled around the neighborhood, it made a very cool flapping sound, and you traded them and you flipped them and you matched them yeah. and dematched them, and then they went in a shoebox and you categorized them by by position or by league or whatever, and then you went off to college and your mother cleaned out the closet and she threw them away. So, And you came home and you screamed. Yeah, yeah. well, one that survived the purge was this 58 mantle, which was the first mantle I'd gotten because I was six years old in 1958, it was the first year that I, that I uh, had baseball cards. And so I thought, well, it'd, it'd be a sacrilege to throw it away, so I tucked it away and never said anything about it. And Tony Kubek, who I did the baseball game of the week with in the 80s on NBC, was Mickey's teammate on great Yankee teams, the shortstop. And when he 
caught a glimpse of it. He then mentioned it on the game the next day. And Sports Illustrated wrote about it the next week. And ever since then, people have asked, as this gentleman did, not a setup, they've, they've asked three or four times Same card? Week. No, what, uh, it, it's, it's the same card, 58 All-Star card. Right. But what started to happen after it got publicized is people, complete strangers, would send them to me as wow. birthday and Christmas gifts. You know, you have those boxes in newspapers, today's birthdays. That's how I know I'm younger than William Shatner and older than <laughs> Reese Witherspoon, yeah. or both of whom were born on March 22nd. But more relevant. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, but in, in any case, um, so I, I probably over the years have gotten a couple dozen of them. And when this one gets too dog-eared, and I've got a few of them that are laminated, but when this one gets too dog-eared, then I'll exchange it for another one. But I can't go anywhere. And they always say I keep it in the wallet, but actually if I have a suit on, I'll put it here because you can reach it more, more readily. But even if I'm in like jeans and a t-shirt, I'm just going to get a cup of coffee. I have to tuck it in my back pocket because a few times I've bumped into somebody and it's, oh my gosh, you want, I don't have it. And the guy thinks I'm a fraud. So <laughs> can't okay, be done. Um, so turn it over to was, was, yeah, was there a question? Or is that, that was it. Okay, thank you. Oh, Marty Glickman. I was going to say, on a recent podcast, you compared the analytical ability of Tom Seaver to George Carlin and Jerry Seinfeld in breaking down their respective professions, yes. pitching and comedy. Was Marty Glickman their equal in sports broadcasting, and what's the most important advice or critique you shared with you that might apply to students today? Well, Marty Glickman, for those who don't know, first of all, was a world-class athlete. He played football and basketball and ran track at Syracuse University in the 30s, and he was on the U.S. Olympic team, teammate of Jesse Owens. Uh, in 1936 in Berlin. And he and Sam Stoller, who were on the team, were Jewish athletes, and both the U.S. track coach and the head of the U.S. delegation, um, they, they were both blatantly anti-Semitic and quite likely racist, but Jesse Owens and Ralph Metcalf were the two fastest sprinters in America. Uh, Marty Glickman might have been the third fastest man in America. Owens had already apparently embarrassed Hitler, it's a well-known story, by winning gold medals right under Hitler's nose as he watched from his reviewing stand. And then it came time for the 4 by 100 relay, which would have included Stoller and Glickman. And they were told that they wouldn't run. And Owens himself got up in the meeting and said, let Sam and Marty run, we'll, we'll win no matter what. Um, and he was told, according to Marty, shut up, you'll do as you're told. And Marty believed to his dying day that the reason for this was that Owens and Metcalf, African-American athletes, had infuriated Hitler, and now they weren't going to let Jewish athletes do the same. And a few months later, Glickman and Stoller did run in an international meet against virtually the same competition with Owens and Metcalf, and they, they did win handily. So then, anyway, Marty goes on from there to become not a color commentator or analyst, but a great play-by-play -play man who had a distinctive and vibrant voice that was just brimming with energy. He often said, I want people to feel as if I'm almost playing the game, and that's the way I feel. And as a former athlete, he could do that authentically. He was great on radio football, but he was especially great on basketball because he practically invented the terminology top of the key, out on the wing, off the dribble. His call for a basket, his protege Marv Albert came up with yes, but Marty's call was swish, which when you think of it is so descriptive because that's the sound of, a, of the ball passing through the net. 
and you could almost feel the, the rhythm and flow of a game when Marty did it, and then when his, when his protege Marv Albert did it, uh, especially on the radio. And Marty, unlike some people in the business, not most, but some, who want to see others fail or resent it when others do well, Marty was such a generous soul that he, he reveled in others doing well and reveled in being able to pass on his knowledge to, to young aspiring broadcasters. And the best, I'm sure he gave other advice to other people, but his advice to me was, you look so young, like I was 30 years old and it looked like I was 15. You look so young and you have so much in your head. You're speaking too rapidly. You never hear an older, mature person speak too rapidly. Slow down. That was his best advice to me. Thanks for listening to Believe in the Media Guide. If you enjoy this show, please subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes. We're also available on Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Find us at Believe.com, that's B-L-E-A-V.com, and on social at Believe Podcasts. I'm on Twitter at Hotem, H-O-T-H-E-M as in Mary. Stay tuned and stay safe. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.